Hello and welcome to Cooking Books with me, Jilly Smith. And this week I am back in the Mediterranean, virtually of course, with Theo Michaels, whose latest book, Rustica, takes us back to the recipes of his village family life in Cyprus. I don't know, it's the most comforting soup known to man, I reckon, and it's it's fundamental. It's it's entwined in, in the Greek and the Cypriot culture, and there's not a Greek Cypriot or, or Greek mainland that hasn't got their variation of it. But before we bask in the warmth of a Cypriot autumn, let me thank Montezuma's, Britain's greatest little chocolate company for sponsoring Cooking the Books this season. Its adventurous founders, Helen and Simon Pattinson, founded Montezuma's 20 years ago after falling in love with chocolate while staying on a cocoa plantation in South America, and they've followed their hearts ever since. We've learned over the past few weeks about their commitment to saving the planet with their eco-packaging, even the ink is recycled, and their chocolates are as delicious as their business ethos. This week I tipped a whole pack of their organic white chocolate giant buttons into my favourite brownie recipe from Gifford Circus Cookbook. You can hear Oz Hallas talk about them in an earlier episode of Cooking the Books to make the creamiest blondies ever. So thanks Montezuma's a real treat. Now, back to Cyprus, where Theo Michaels has been leafing through the family photos and chatting to his family about life in the old country. And it was actually, this one was inspired a lot by the conversations with my mum and my family when I was doing Oryxy, actually, the, the, other, the other book last year. Um, and it, it just set, sowed this seed of this sort of philosophy of eating, this village food mentality, and it, it just kept... It just kept lingering with me for ages, and so I, I we sort of decided with the publisher to dive in and, and make something new, focusing on that on that little sort of moment of inspiration in those conversations. Yeah, and when you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about the kind of the localism, the the way that people used to eat. You know, they used to eat their own pigs, goats, the rabbits from the field, the the food from the land, the the healthiest food in the world, the Mediterranean diet that is, you know, ripened by the sun and picked by the family, and nobody goes anywhere. Nobody, there's no carbon <laughs> footprint. I mean, it's <laughs> no it's footprint. perfect, isn't it? It really is. And, and it, I mean, it, it's a very sort of charm. I mean, the, it's, it can be very romanticised, I think, and a very sort of charming sort of outlook on it. I think the reality is it was a very, um, a very frugal existence. And, and so much of it was born out of necessity. Um, so it wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of wealth that was spent on uh, disposable, disposable foods, I guess, supermarket stuff. Um, and so, so it was born out of necessity. And so it's, it's a very romantic notion. But then when you sort of start to strip it back a bit, you think, oh, there's, there, was, there was a reason for this, actually. This wasn't a fad. It wasn't a, a let's try doing it differently. It was actually, this is the way we have to do it. Yeah, um, it's peasant food. And, and the best food from around the world is very often peasant food, isn't it? It's stripped right back to, you know, flavour. How do you get flavour out of an old hen, for example, which is one of your food moments, which we'll go into later. Yeah. But it's that, isn't it? It's like, okay, we've got this. We are blessed with beautiful uh, ingredients, but how do you make the best and how do you feed a large family with it? And so you have to become incredibly creative with with ingredients that this is it and, and it's funny actually because it i mean i focus on the mediterranean that's that's my roots and what i know and, and love but when you get into the guts of the history of a lot of recipes it's a bit like the um the chili con carne you know and, and actually you get into the guts of it it's like why was there so much spice in that and it's like well because the meat wasn't that great and so we're camouflaging <laughs> yeah. it and it's the, the cock of van i mean what why is it 
sitting there in a, in, a, in a vat of red wine for two days. It's like, well, we've got to camouflage a bit of this. Um, and, and, I, and I find it a really, I, I love it. I love that concept. And I love the fact that so many recipes that are sort of ubiquitous in, you know, in our life, that they actually stem from a real, a real reason, a real cause for why they are yeah. what they are. Um, and invariably yeah. they become a bit massaged with, you know, what we have on offer. So, you know, you're buying a lovely supermarket chicken that's, that's plump and succulent and, and the meat isn't tough. Um, but when you get into the guts of it, you're like, oh, I love the fact that there's a reason for this. This isn't just, yeah. it tastes good. There's, there's something there, there's substance to it. Yeah, it's, it's about substance. You're absolutely right. You didn't grow up in Cyprus yourself, did you? No, no, not at all. North London, lads. From, <laughs> which, <laughs> depending on what part of North London, is, is good as Cyprus, to be honest. So um, family was sort of Palmer's Green, Wood Green area. Were you always interested in your heritage? At what point did the, the North London lad start looking back at his aunts and uncles and grannies and grandpas in a different way and realizing that they had something that was very important to you it's funny actually because i think if i'm being honest i probably rebelled against that that cultural background as when i in my younger years because i you know i'm a you know i i, I look very greek <laughs> you know, there's, there's no getting around it i've got the eyebrows for proof and and I guess being a, um, we moved around a bit. So we were in London, in Edmonton for till I was like five. And then we went to the States and then we came back to London and then we moved to, to Hertfordshire. And so what I didn't have was a really, really strong um, Greek social life. Like, you know, I went to Greek school every Sunday um, and our family is Greek, first generation and everything. But the social circles I mixed in were, were very English and and actually, as a kid, I think, you know, there's this tribal instinct to assimilate with your environment. And yeah. being the outsider within that group, you you know, you want to... I mean, I remember coming home, actually, really early on. Um, I must be like... Before we went to America, so it's like pre-five years old. And my first name is Theophanos. That's my first name in, in its entirety. And everyone used to call me Thanos. And I remember going to school in Edmonton and... You know what, what's your name, mate? It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's Thanos, and and I, you know, I had every response come back to me from that. It's like, what was that? You're my fanny, did you say? And I, I remember, as soon as I walked into the door back at home, I was like, the name is Theo. That's the only way I want to be referred to. Um, and so I guess, in answer to your question, the, the younger years, it was very much a case of I don't want to be massively associated because, and then even when we moved to um, to Hertfordshire, it was a very a very white, anglicised um, area. All my friends were English. And, you know, you're, you're, you're kicking around on the streets. You're doing what little troublesome, snotty-nosed teenagers do. And, and, it, and there wasn't a huge benefit in being this outsider. Um, and then I think it's only as you sort of, for me anyway, as I got, got a bit older and, and matured, that I started to embrace that side of me a lot more. Um, I mean, I've always been proud of it. But there was definitely a, I guess, an element of self-preservation, actually. Yeah. Was it when you had your kids? No, I think it was before that. I think it was probably more sort of university stages when, Mm. you know, it was a much more cosmopolitan environment, a much more mixed environment. There was a lot of more mutual respect. Um, 
you know, because I guess as a kid there was a little bit of racism and stuff. Not not in a heavy way, but you know, you're you're dark and the rest of us are not. And a yeah. bit of banter that goes with that, and that's fine. Um, but I think probably more at university was a bit more inclusive in some respects. And so suddenly it was like, oh, actually, you know, I can be proud of that. I mean, I say all this, uh, Jenny, but I still remember even at 15, all, all the friends notoriously turning up around five or six o'clock when it was dinner time because my mum would be making, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a stew, a seafood stew. And they'd be like, oh, what's that? Let's have some of that. And so you know i don't want to sort of push it too far away we we did embrace well, it well i think we talked about that before didn't we yeah. when we first met um over your last book and uh you know i i wrote a book about australian food and i interviewed a lot of greeks who had gone to australia and they said there was massive racism until the smell of the spit roast <laughs> lamb the barbecued lamb would go across the fences and then all the kids from the neighborhood wanted to go round to that person's house and suddenly they became the most popular boy in town and and there were lots and lots of stories you know food is a fantastic way of of dealing with you know bad feeling bad racism it breaks it down it does Um, it really does break barriers and i imagine that at university you'd have been the most popular bloke in 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 the halls (laughs) if you started bringing out some of your granny's recipes was that true is that what you started doing yeah i mean we i mean i i I loved cooking from the word go and i think we might have spoke about this before because there's these conversations that uh, people have and they go oh you know i had an epiphany and i found my love of food and and i've never really gone with that because it's like well in our, you know, in, in a lot of Mediterranean cultures and other cultures, it's just part of your DNA. It's it's the way it is, and it's from mm-hmm. the word go. So I've always been into food and loved it, but it did make me laugh what you mentioned, especially when my wife and I went travelling years ago, and we were in a, a youth hostel in Argentina, I think it was, and everyone's cooking, like, you know, pot noodles and stuff, and, and we're, you know, we're kicking out these lovely steaks with chimichurri sauces and the, all the bits, and everyone was like, what's that? What's the... Like the backpacker over there kicking out. He's got like a three course <laughs> yeah. meal going on. I um, want to be his mate. Yeah, we be really popular over <laughs> in there. Um, and so, yeah, I think food actually is a really good um, uh, sort of, sort of uh, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of middle ground, a good peace treaty actually to yeah, get food it's involved. Yeah, it's, it it's a connector. It's a connector. It's, you know, it's the the oldest way of making friends in the world isn't it come and sit down break some bread with me have some of this delicious stuff and and boy is it delicious i mean let's go into your first food moment the village octopus ah yeah so uh, this was what i mean we talked about sort of romanticizing things and this was one of those stories i remember chatting with um with my auntie cristalla actually and she made a it was like a slow cooked stew uh squid and it happens with the octopus as well. But and I, and I sort of we reached. I was like, I love this. I was like, how do you how do you cook it? Um, and invariably with things like this, it's you know, it's a handful of this, it's a glug of that. There's no there's no real concept and measurements. Everything's eyeballed and instinctive. And I sort of got the gist of okay, this all goes into it. I said, well, how long do you cook it for? And her response was, well, we drop it off at the communion. We used to drop it off at the communion oven on the way to church, and then when church finished, we pick it up. And I was like, well, how long was church? Like, how long did you cook? How hot is the communion oven? But I just love that idea of this sort of... I mean, one, the communion oven in itself, I think, is an amazing sort of concept. Um, but that just notion of that the food being so utterly entwined with your, with your life, your day-to-day life, that it, yeah. we do that and that happens, and then when we finish this, it's ready. And I thought... Yeah. 
how refreshing. There's no, you know, 200 degrees for an hour and a half and then take the foil off and da 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 It's just, you put it in and when it's ready. And that's invariably the phrase that always makes me laugh. And I, I was doing some... Um, Events and we, I found a Greek butcher and I said, Look, I need, I need some decent um, lamb shoulder cut into chunks for my for my souvla. And I said, Oh, out of curiosity, how long you um, how long do you cook, cook yours for? Like, how do you know when your one is ready? And he went, Well, you know, it's ready when it's ready. And I thought, Of course you do. <laughs> of course you know it's ready when it's ready. Well, how else? When else would it be ready? And and so I love that. And so that's that was part of the challenge actually with the book was um, deciphering some of those methods into something that's really accessible yeah and how did you do that you must have just taken all of these recipes back to your your own kitchen and just played with them until until what what were you trying to achieve because you can't make that village octopus at home really can you i mean the recipe for it is is inspired by your aunt but it it can't possibly taste the same can it no no and and i and i think that's partly because our experience of food is is more than the food itself you know it's like i mean i joked to someone said you know the the best fish you've ever had on your life is when you're you're sitting on the greek taverna you've got the wind is blowing you can feel the sand on your feet you're having a, a keo beer and you've had this amazing fish cooked on the bar it's the best fish you've ever had in your life and i think actually do you know what it probably isn't the best fish you've ever had in your life by by any stretch actually yeah. but all of those things, the sum of all of those things come together to make that experience, that moment, spectacular. And, and so you're right, I, there's no way I'm going to recreate this dish that someone would go, oh, it sends me back 70 years as a, as a kid eating this. But what I do do with it is I, I've got the recollection of what it tastes like, because obviously this conversation came about from, from eating it, um, and then, and then I just, you know, you play with it as chefs do. You, you recreate, and and it's that sort of concept of originality, which that all elusive originality, which doesn't really exist. I mean, I think I don't know if it was Vivian Westwood who's got that great quote of if of if you think you've got something original, you just haven't looked back far enough. Yeah, and it's like you're right, and so it's it's more a case of as you said, you take the inspiration from that you you entwine and weave that that story yeah. into it and and the way it would be so you know it's slow cooked to begin with yeah. you know it's going to take time and you know that this isn't you know no one's dicing tiny perfect bits of onion for it this is going to be a bit rough and so i think you take all of those things and you and you put it in the pot and you try it and then you you do it three or four more times because you're like the flavor's not right the consistency's not right and then you ultimately you get to a point where you go that's lovely. I yeah. really enjoyed that. And that's, yeah. that's as good as it's going to get. And of course, when we read it, you know, we read it within the context of that story and we are transported to a Sunday in Cyprus. And, you know, we don't need to be there. God, it would be absolutely lovely to be there right now. <laughs> but we can't be there, but we can at least have the flavours. Um, the second food moment is very different to that. It's your childhood, isn't it? And again, it's not your childhood in Cyprus, but it's your childhood in your family home, isn't it? It's where Cyprus meets North London and your heritage is your story in your food. Tell us about that. So this is the uh, the macaronia boli, which is, I mean, it translates to, to pasta chicken, I guess. And yeah, this really reminds, this actually, the memory of this is sitting um, after school in Hertfordshire. And it's one of those, it's like the most frugal 
peasant dish, which is pasta cooked in a bit of chicken stock, or as, or as we would do now is cheat and use a stock cube, and just simply loads of halloumi, fresh halloumi grated over the top, and and it's one of those... It's one of those things like you feel almost a bit embarrassed about, really, because it's so... You know, what is it? I mean, it's basically Simple. a load of pasta cooked in chicken stock with some Greek cheese on top. I mean, it's... Lovely. It's one step away from a sort of pot noodle, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's that incredible thing that when we've done it for friends, and it was that moment of realisation of when other um, friends would come round and we might be like, oh, we're just going to do the kids a quick bit of pasta. Do your kids want some? And people would try it and go, oh, that tastes incredible. It's amazing. And, it's, and it was that thing that even though it's so... Um, it's so close to you, you don't really appreciate that actually people that don't have wholesale halloumi in their fridge 365 days of the year <laughs> would really appreciate that, that that's so simple. And that's, and that's a real memory. And, and it's funny because, you know, anyone, any Greek person I've met, they've, they've got a, a very slight variation. But nine times out of ten, it's the same thing. It's a type of pasta and it's got some grated halloumi and it's the most instant perfect healthy midweek snack you can get i mean it for me it's another thing to do if you've had a lovely roast chicken on a sun for your sunday lunch and you use the carcass and you make a lovely stock and you know it's a thing to have on a monday lunchtime i might do that very thing today i've got some halloumi at the top i've never grated halloumi i you know i'll pan fry it and uh, or i'll put it on the the griddle or or i'll you know use it on the barbecue or i'll even roast it actually yeah. it's delicious roasted um might even make vegetarian fish and chips with halloumi i'll do all sorts of things yeah. with halloumi now but i've never actually grated it so good call on that one i'm gonna yeah. have that one for lunch <laughs> um your third food moment again it's using the old hen stock idea for making something really really important to a little cypriot boy yeah, I mean, so the, this is so the the avril lemony, which uh, translates as egg lemon, basically, because it's so avril lemony is a sauce that's used a lot in in Greek and Cypriot cuisine, which is basically a combination of of eggs and egg yolks and lemons. So you get a very sharp but creamy type sauce, and, and you can use it on loads of different things. But avril lemony as a as a soup is, you know, it's the same as the the Jewish penicillin of their chicken soup, and it's that. I don't know, it's the most comforting soup known to man, I reckon. And it's it's fundamental. It's it's entwined in, in the Greek and the Cypriot culture. And there's not a Greek Cypriot or, or Greek mainland that hasn't got their variation of it. And, you know, sometimes people use rice. Sometimes they use orzo pasta and it might change. But, you know, it, it'll, it'll fix a broken heart as quick as it'll fix a broken leg. I mean, that's the, if something's gone wrong, you have a bowl of that and life gets gets a bit better. And it's a, <laughs> it's a delicious soup and it's incredibly creamy and it's a bit sharp with the lemons. It's all those sort of headline flavours. But again, what I love about it is where, is where that stems from because it's that notion of, you know, we've got a chicken in our, in our small holding in the garden and we're not, we're not, we're not, roasting that chicken while it's succulent and young because i've got another two years of eggs out of that yeah. and that's that's important because it's that frugal yeah. village life existence so you know you keep that hen and then eventually it gets to a point where its egg laying career is done and yeah. now it's a case that we're gonna we're gonna use it still it's not gonna go to waste and it's tough as old boots and so that notion again of, of 
putting that hen into a, a, a slow simmer for hours and hours. And and actually, you, the soup rarely comes with much meat. It's really about the stock. And mm. then you thicken it with the rice and you thicken it with the lovely um, egg and lemon sauce that you sort of temper into it. And, and it just gives it that creaminess. And so, it's again, it's about getting all the nutrients and the health and the, and the meal out of something that really is quite inedible now. Um, and it's like you mentioned, it's the same as the Cocker Van. There's all these throughout the world. And I, and that's why I love it. It's because it's, it's close to my heart as a childhood memory. It's prevalent in every kitchen, uh, Greek kitchen. But it, but it actually comes from somewhere of substance as well. It's not yeah. just a cool thing to eat. It's No, absolutely. I it. mean, you call it life in a bowl and it's, it's two ends of life. It's which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, actually, it's both of them. <laughs> it's the old hen at the end of her life and it's the, the unfertilised egg. You know, it is, it's got a real lovely sort of poetry about it. I think it's a beautiful dish, actually. And it's, you know, the fact that it will have been made for centuries yeah won't it you know and that is the other thing that you talk about these these zero waste is about actually making the most of absolutely everything because it is part of a peasant diet but it hasn't changed these recipes have been passed down probably orally for generation after generation after generation with love and the fact that this is about you know for broken hearts and it, that will have been part of the story that will have been passed on to you i bet you've sat around with your grandmother and she's told you about her broken heart and you've told her this about your it. broken heart this is it it's, it's exactly that and it's it's um there's something really magical about that and it, and as you said about being a part and it doesn't even get passed down orally it's almost it, it gets passed down through osmosis yeah. you know because and it goes back to as I mentioned earlier about you know have you always been into food and it's like well your life is in the kitchen so you're you're standing there as as you've seen a, a hundred of these chickens being slowly simmered and you've seen a hundred times the way these eggs have been whisked with the lemon and then it's slowly a bit of soup goes into it then it goes into the soup and so it's almost by osmosis that you you sort of go i, I know how to make that and i don't yeah. don't know if i've ever been told but I've, I've been in proximity to the the making of this for for a few decades and and it's amazing but this- but I bet I wonder if the the story, you know, that it's the things that you remember, the things that I remember are not just standing watching it happen and the smells coming out of the kitchen, but actually the the, the stories about why they're making it. You know, my mum used to tell me stories about why she would make a a particular dish, where she first came across it. She was really interested in you know taking food from Malaysia, where we first, where I grew up, and just changing it here and there or just telling me a story about when she how i never ate anything other than rice and how you know because i lived in a place where everyone ate rice with chopsticks i used chopsticks before i used a knife and fork those stories make me love malay food more than i love the flavors of malay food somehow and i wonder if you would just be sitting there with your yaya and your your mum and just chatting about what those foods meant to them would they do that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know, actually. I think, I think sometimes it's conversations around that, but I think it becomes more subliminal almost. It just becomes, you know, the reality is we're, it's a busy family. There's, there's, there yeah. was me and two brothers. There's mum and dad. So there was a period of time where they were both working. Um, and then there was a period of time where, where mum was part-time and stuff like that. And 
I think almost for me, the food becomes this this platform that we're. It gives us the focal point. It gives us the place to congregate yeah. and an activity to do while we pass the time in talking about our days and and stuff that's gone on. And and it, I guess it was only actually when I got older with some of my yaya's recipes um i always remember she used to do this gunelli which is rabbit in greek and it was like a stefano so it was a huge amount of olive oil huge amount of onions lots of vinegar um and it was only as she got older that i i guess i started to panic that well, where am i going to get this from <laughs> there's going to be a day you're not here and i don't know anyone else that makes this gunelli stefano like you do um, and so there was a period of time where then the conversations changed from, you know, how's your day been to mm. how do you make this? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you do? What goes into it? And invariably, you, you never get a prescribed recipe. You, you, you get sort of a slap around the back of the head and you're told a bit of this goes in and a bit of that goes in. And, and you know, just watch me. And I've not got time to explain it. And that matriarchal powerhouse, which, which, is, which is magic. Um, oh. So there, there's a, there was some of that later on, but for the most part, I think it was subliminal. The food was, it was just that platform. I think it was yeah. that what brought what brings you together, and it, it gives you something to congregate around, and that's and that's really special. And I think that's part of more of a movement that definitely I've noticed over the you know the forty plus years of being on the planet. That when we were kids, food was for a lot of my friends, it was a, a functional thing. It was. Fill, fill me up and then we're going to go out and, ha- and have a drink that was the idea yeah. and and i always remember sort of thinking oh it's funny that's not that's not how we do it and that's that's cool um but then now it, the movement seems to be much more i think in the uk we've become a bit more european i guess um yeah. or international in the in the feeling of well let's let's eat together because this is the only time i mean i know even now for us it's you know the kids get home from school they're they're doing homework. They're or nine times out of ten, they're trying to get out of doing homework. They're running around. <laughs> we're doing bits, and then suddenly, in this whirlwind, you get this this eye of the storm moment where, for forty five minutes, you're all present at a table together. And yeah. It's like cherish it, cherish yeah. it. And and you know, if I'm honest, Jilly, does it? Would it matter if it was a a, a takeaway? Would it matter if it was a home cooked meal? It probably doesn't actually, because no. it's that congregation is more well it's the, it's the most important thing in the world isn't it yeah i mean i suppose it, it doesn't matter at all what's on the table unless um except i think there's something really lovely about passing on the recipes of your family to your kids do you do that do you, do you, do you cook with the kids <clears throat> we, we cook with the kids a lot actually um i mean bear in mind i mean my eldest is just turning 11 the youngest is four Although it's hysterical because, I mean, the young, the four-year-old the other day, we found him in the kitchen and he'd made the pancake batter. He, he knew there were... I mean, the quantities were out, totally, but there was flour in it, there was milk, there was an egg that he broke and there's probably a bit of eggshell in there for some crunch. Um, and he knew what he was doing. And, and then the older ones, you know, they're getting more involved with, OK, let's fry some of this and stuff. And, and I, I think it's one of those things, I think it's always... It's almost res- retrospect is where I think the appreciation comes from. Because as a kid, yeah. you know, you when just I go look, and do it, don't you? You, you do, just and, make I, magic. And, I look, and I look back on it and think, oh, did I really appreciate 
those hours my mum spent in the kitchen and did I really appreciate that actually the food we had I mean I always remember the this seafood dish with the little tentacles of squid and stuff that we, we all fought over and and I think did I really appreciate it at the time maybe a bit if I'm honest but not not as much as I do now believe me as a mother speaking to you when they're <laughs> fighting over the food that's appreciation that's what you want <laughs> your fourth food moment is something your dad used to make and still does yeah yeah so this was like the michael's family dinner and that, and i think this was the thing my mum was very um so my mum was born in cyprus and came over when she was 11 and she she brought a lot of that um a lot of those recipes with with the sisters there's like there's like 27 sisters there's loads of them and uh, there's not 27 um and and, and whereas my dad's albeit still full full greek blood was was much more cavalier in his cooking so mum did a lot of the traditional stuff so the avgolemonies and the the fuzzy and and all these other things that that were real traditional dishes from from cyprus from the villages and where my dad was the cavalier it was oh we're gonna you know we've got some bustle mal which is a lovely greek spicy sausage i'm gonna chop that up and we're gonna throw it in with some eggs and then i'm gonna fry off these and so you got this thing that looked a bit like a, a spanish tortilla but there was a lot of greek ingredients but i but i loved it for that that laissez-faire the the, the casualness which was you know what this is this is just about nourishment this is gonna we're gonna get it on the table and, and he used to put it on the table i always remember it it on in the frying pan um not because jamie oliver did it and it looked really cool but just because he couldn't be bothered to mess up a plate and it'd go there and we'd just spoon it onto our plates on these little side plates and we'd waff it down and we'd chat and we'd talk about what we're doing for the day. And it, and that was a real magical moment. And I and I remember them and I've tried to recreate that with my own kids so many times and and none of them really like eggs that much, so it's really <laughs> annoying me at the moment. <laughs> so I sort Keep of made, going with I, it. I'm gonna persevere, honestly, you know, I'm yeah. not letting them off. Um but it's lovely how you you talk about how you used to have that, you know, with milk as small kids sitting on laps and then strong Greek coffee as teenagers nursing a hangover, <laughs> dissecting the night before. I mean, that is the glory of food, family food, isn't it? It just kind of keeps going through your life. It takes different, it takes on a different character, but it's always there. And it that's is. the magic, isn't it? It really is, you know, because actually when you, when, when you sort of look back on life, it's one of the one of the very few consistent veins that that sort of thread through your your life really and so like the avril lemony like those breakfasts you know our life changed a lot we you know lived in america we lived in london we lived in hertfordshire we you know we grew up doing different things but the the avril lemony soup once you know once every couple of weeks was there throughout that Mm. and those breakfasts that my dad used to whip up were were there throughout you know whether it was in london or america or here it was it was happening and and you're right it's one of the very few sort of consistent consistent themes that you sort of you have that you can lean back on and 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 i think it's it's age as well isn't it you sort of get older and now with my own family i make some of those things and you know they're, they're for the kids as i as i was they're just seeing it as some as let's eat some food and you know let's do what we're going to do and for me there's a little a little knowing smile of you i don't think you've got it yet but you're going to remember this 
Yeah. And if I feed this enough to you <laughs> in 20 yeah. years, you'll be making your kids that don't like eggs eat it as well. And I'm going to enjoy <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, it's wonderful. And if you think about all the really important things in life, it's sitting around sharing great food, just lovely, warm family food with the people you love most. Compane, company, you know, it's it's it just all there, isn't it? You're taking ideas that have been passed down over generations, zero waste, super sustainable, local food mostly plant-based again you know that's really important to say you know meat and fish were expensive and used in celebrations mainly um so most of your ideas are plant-based very sustainable very planet friendly it's all very low carbon i mean it's like the diet to save the world isn't it and it's so healthy I, i really i really believe and that was that was i mean you know for all the the sort of um the romanticised elements of, of food of food is is irrelevant in a way, and it's about the congregation. There was also this element of, but it is vital. We need it, and you know, I mean, we 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 still eat goat, um, you know, rabbit. We love having mm. rabbit, and whenever I'm sort of working in France, you know, I'm amazed that it's it's in every supermarket. It's it's like yeah. another shelf of chicken. You've got every different cut. Yeah. You can buy it whole. And and it's those things as well where I think, oh, we really need to be expanding our repertoire mm. of meats to include some of these that are really sustainable. We've repositioned peasant food. Frugality is actually about lowering your carbon footprint as well it's about being inventive uh teaching kids to to get into food really young means that we are raising a a new generation of kids who can think more laterally and use ingredients to make great flavors it's lovely talking to you again theo i feel like i've spent the last half hour in cyprus um (laughs) i've got the sun shining on me and i'm gonna go and grate my halloumi over some chicken stock thank you very much indeed julie thank you for having me such a pleasure take care Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. Next week, I'm having a little half-term break before coming back via Burma with the Rangoon Sisters and Denmark with Trina Hahnemann, amongst many others. Do pop over to juliesmith.com and sign up for my newsletter if you want to hear what I've been doing. And do subscribe, rate and review and all that stuff. And I will see you soon.